everybody. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I continue to not be joined by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo, for another week at least. But I have a guest on today that I am extremely excited to welcome back to the show. She is, uh, for my money, the best NBA writer doing it right now. And uh, she covers the Indiana Pacers absolutely masterfully. I, uh, I'm just thrilled to welcome back Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, thank you for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm thrilled to be back. I always appreciate when I get a return invite because that means that I wasn't a total disaster on the first episode. Like, you never know. You never know. Has that ever happened where you've not gotten an invite back or where you've been a total disaster? It's hard for me to to imagine given the quality of your analysis and your your work in general. It, it's but. possible. Sometimes I get replaced. Sometimes people want to have different types of conversations. You never know. Fair enough. Well, listeners of this podcast will know that I had kind of a long time fascination with the Pacers and then sort of midway through the Bjorkren season renounced my Pacers fandom. That's fair. And I, you know, I'm thinking of, of renewing my card because they've turned into something completely different. I think it just in terms of, I mean, the play style, uh, they played at a super fast pace under Bjorkren as well but not necessarily in a way that suited their personnel whereas I feel like last season there was a much happier marriage I think of of personnel and style and in kind of moving on from the the Sabonis Brogdon era they turned into I think a much more exciting and interesting kind of team whereas I feel like I don't know they'd gotten pretty vanilla for a while and then when Bjorkren was there it was I don't know if I would describe it as vanilla, but it was kind of interesting in not all of the right ways. So I think last season was really refreshing in terms of just seeing more of a vision lock into place. And I think that continued this offseason with some really interesting moves that they made. So I'm very excited and and very curious to see what this team looks like this year, uh, as I imagine you are as well. And I know you've probably been doing the rounds and talking about this team, thinking about this team a ton. So I guess I'll ask you off the bat, is there an aspect of this team that maybe you feel like you haven't been asked about a lot, haven't gotten to talk about as much as you would like, or that you think has sort of gotten short shrift in the the general conversation around this team? Yeah, I mean, I think something that I'll be keeping my eye on that I really, nobody's really talked about that much, I don't think, is what you started out with there as far as their identity. You know, when Nate Bjorken was the coach, he was coaching the team that he wanted, not the team that he had. Mm. And then the 26 games when Tyrese came over from the trade, there was legitimate questions, at least on my part, because they started those first four games and they were playing at a breakneck pace. I was like, oh, this is a shift and this is definitely how Tyrese wants to play. Like you can watch him even in the World Cup. That guy, when an opponent makes a shot, he wants to get to the other end of the floor. The Pacers ranked last season second in time to shoot after a made shot. But by the end of the season, they had fallen back into the low 20s in transition frequency that year. And that was true of most of Rick Carlisle's teams over like the last 10 years. They had all been bottom five in transition frequency and wondering like how are Tyrese and Rick Carlisle really going to mesh and is this going to come to fruition? Is he going to be willing to adjust that? And pretty quickly it was evident that he was and how much that relationship has grown. Um, But then the other aspect of that is they're very good in the open floor. I don't know how many people know that they were not very good in the half court offensively. So for as good of a pick and roll creator and as creative as he is as a pick and roll creator, The Pacers were like 22nd in half-court offense. So that is something to keep an eye on next year, especially because I feel like the spacing will change for the Pacers, undeniably. When, you know, it seems as though Benedict Mathern's going to ascend into the starting lineup. He very quietly didn't shoot the ball very well over the second half of the season. If Buddy Heald is no longer out there, which Halliburton to Heald was the number one assist combo and made threes in the NBA, what does that do and and what happens when they do get confined into the half court, I think is kind of an underrated talking point that hasn't been touched on a lot. Yeah. And the healed thing is really interesting to me because it was super evident to me, even going back to, I don't know what, three or four years ago, like that, that fun season that Sacramento had under Dave Yeager when they were playing just ridiculously fast and were better than pretty much anybody expected them to be. 
I think his best skill is the balance that he has and the body control to be able to stop and pop in transition, like going from running almost full speed uh, to being able to square up and hit threes basically on the break. And when, when you talk about, you know, his synergy with Halliburton and the ability to turn transition opportunities into three pointers, I think that was a big part of the transition success that you're alluding to. And so, you know, if Matherin is going to take his place, I guess, in the starting lineup, if he's going to wind up on the trade block and maybe not be on this team long-term, I do wonder how that changes their approach or how they, they look or whether they can continue to be as successful in transition. I mean, do you, I think he's on an expiring contract now. Like, do you see him as part of this team's long-term future or is it more of a stopgap? When Kevin Pritchard was asked about that during exit interviews at the end of the season, he was non-committal. I think they really value Buddy and especially like even just beyond what he does on the court, his durability. The guy does not want to miss games. He'll do anything to avoid missing games. He's been incredibly durable for a number of seasons now and they value all of that. But in terms, it was telling because when he was asked, he said, you know, I'm not a, I'm not opposed to doing an extension, but it would have to be a role that both sides agree to, which was very indicative to me that they were anticipating he would be coming off the bench. And in the past, you know, he didn't want to come off the bench in Sacramento. You know, it is a slightly different situation now, and he did it at the, over the last 10 games. Ben had already moved into the starting lineup at the end of last season. But, you know, it is going to be a give and take because I think for the long term, you need to move Ben into being a starter and see how that looks and play him with Tyrese and get those reps. But like you just said, like Buddy was number one in shots taken between 22 and 18 seconds on the shot clock. He was number one in made transition threes. Um, and then just also like what they do in the half court. If Tyrese gets a switch, the number one thing they do to attack that is Buddy is a ghost screener to try to create a little bit of indecision so Tyrese can get into the paint. That doesn't have quite the same effect when the person's shooting 31% on jump shots. So, you know, it'll have to be strides from Ben. But I, I, if they don't come to an agreement on an extension, I wouldn't be surprised if they look around for opportunities to move him before the deadline, I guess is where I would land. Yeah, I, I mean... To pivot off of that, I do think Matherin is maybe the most interesting player on this roster for this coming season. And uh, you wrote a great piece about him on your Patreon page. I should have mentioned that off the top. Incredible Patreon basketball she wrote about how change is coming for him in year two. And you sort of wrote about how defenses had started to shift to account for his tendencies, one of which is his penchant for driving left coupled with his inability or unwillingness to throw passes and especially passes across his body with that left hand. And I'm really curious about this just because I, I feel like there's a lot of disagreement about Matherin generally and kind of how good he can be, what type of player he's going to be. I was having a conversation earlier in the summer, like when the Pacers were rumored to be in the mix for Siakam, I was talking to a friend about kind of what would need to come back in that type of a package. And we were arguing over whether the Pacers would, would kick Matherin into that kind of a deal. And my friend was sort of adamant that Matherin just wasn't going to amount to all that much because of the playmaking limitations that, that you sort of laid out in that piece. And he was like, I, I've seen this guy drive the ball a hundred times and I've never seen him make a pass out of it. And that's more or less supported by the data uh, where he was, you know, had one of the lowest pass rates on drives in the entire league last year. And, you know, you're seeing defenses start to account for that by loading up on those drives, especially when he is going left. So I can obviously see and like recognize those limitations, but I also see a guy who as a rookie was 90th percentile in rim rate. And, you know, he didn't finish especially well at the rim, I think in large part because of the way that defenses were were playing him to drive. But he still got there a ton because he has that, you know, great first step and that burst. And then, you know, averaging like seven and a half free throws per 36 minutes as a rookie was also just super impressive to me. So I'm wondering where you're at with Matherin, just in terms of, you know, when it comes to projecting his future, where where do you see him sort of netting out? Yeah, I mean, his flexibility in the air is definitely special to be able to draw contact. And that was one thing that last year, I think the Pacers played 25 games where he didn't make a three 
and they still won his minutes in over half of them because in those games, he still got to the line at least six times per game. Now, that was in part because he wasn't fully seeing this type of exaggerated coverage yet, and I do wonder how much more exaggerated it will get if the starting lineup is no longer, you know, Buddy and Aaron Neesmith and Andrew Nemhard, but it's Obi Toppin and Bruce Brown and Benedict Matherin. There's going to be even more incentive to load up on him. I think that the easiest fix for him is to correct the jump shot and the catch and shoot area, because if he's seeing the longer closeout and he can beat the first line of the defense, you can trust him enough to be able to draw contact and get to the rim elsewhere. But if the person's backing off, which he started seeing more shorter closeouts as the season went on, that's where more of the trouble is going to lie because he so much wants to play out a triple threat. It's almost a shift in mentality that needs to happen. That if he sees the short closeout, he needs to shoot the shot in rhythm instead of holding it and kind of taking some of the stare down threes, especially in summer league that he was taking where, you know, there's ways for isolations to come in the flow of pick and roll rather than stalling out the isolation and kind of playing with your food before you let go of the ball. And that's kind of where he lands. If he can smooth some of that out, I think the passing, while it's still going to be an avenue that he's going to need to improve on, it won't be as damaging as what the potential will be if the shot stays where it currently is. And then at the other end of the floor, which we haven't really touched on, defensively, he like there's not a lot of things that you can readily point to and be like, that's a skill of his on defense. There's uh-huh. a few occasions where like they played the Thunder late in the season and Shea hunted Ben in space. And if he's really committed to being a ball stopper in space, there's times where he can get a stop. Beyond that, like his screen navigation, his off-ball recognition, his feel for when to help and when not to help, like there's a lot that's going to need to be corrected on that end of the floor as well. I guess that leads me to sort of wondering, I mean, whether it is with the playmaking or with the defense, are these kind of more skill-based things that you feel like he can work on or are they feel-based things and then... You know, the big question that I always have about this stuff is like, is feel something that's more innate or is it something that you can learn? I don't yeah, know. I've you, actually, I've, I've talked that. to some people within basketball about that very topic because there was a part of me that when I watched all of his passes, I was like, you know, if this is more to do with skill and just being able to pass with his left hand and getting more velocity on the ball, maybe you feel a little bit better about it than if it's solely about processing kickout avenues. But I think some of it is still processing kick avenues because some of it happens on the right side of the floor as well. But yeah, I mean, I I generally think that skill stuff is a little bit more easier to correct than feel. I mean, I've talked to, like I said, a couple of people who worked in basketball and I asked them that question. I said, I genuinely don't know. How confident are you that you can improve somebody's feel for the game? And they were like, you know, it, it really depends on their commitment and how much they're willing to seek information and being willing to sit and watch film with us. And by all accounts, Ben very much is like I highlighted in that article, there was a play very early in the season against Chicago last year where they ran a huddle. They were moving Ben to the four, which isn't something they had done at all offensively that season. And he stopped outside the huddle to ask Rick Carlisle for additional instruction. And Rick was like, hey, if you get the ball, they're most likely going to blitz Tyrese. When you get it, slip that screen and then be willing to attack the closeout. And Ben did that to perfection on that exact possession. So by all accounts and everything that I hear around there, that he's a very hard worker and he tries to, you know, sit with the coaches on planes after games and get additional feedback and information. So and that side of it, you have faith that he can correct some of it. But at the same time, like I can't readily point to a lot of players who have made tremendous strides in that area. Like Miles Turner is also a fairly low field player. And like last year, you could see him starting to make a few more quicker decisions and like flow game situations, but it's still not. You know, it's 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 very different when you're watching Miles Turner and Sabonis, for instance. Like he's made incremental progress, not a leap. Yeah, I think the one guy that kind of popped into mind for me in terms of developing both the skill and the feel specifically on the playmaking front is DeRozan. Like when he came into the league, there just wasn't a lot there in terms of seeing what he became, you know, functionally being like a a lead playmaker type. Like he's not in the elite elite in in terms of, uh, you know, creating for others, but I think he's come such a long way. And in terms of being able to like diagnose coverages and like manipulate defenders, things like that, that there was just no real indication that he could do early in his career. I don't know that there are a ton of other examples of that, but uh, you know, maybe if there's a blueprint to follow, then his is the one. 
Yeah, I imagine, I wonder too how much, it really felt like DeRozan, that started to click a little bit for him in San Antonio when he made the move to the four. And I mm-hmm. wonder how much playing at that position impacted some of his reads and being in that system. But yeah, I mean, he did make strides on that end of the floor, particularly with his eye manipulation as a passer. And I I think that that progression had definitely started with the Raptors, like toward the tail end of, of his time there. I mean, he wasn't, you know, he was playing next to Lowry and Lowry was still orchestrating the offense most of the time. But DeRozan's last season as a Raptor, I think, was when the that first playmaking leap really happened. And he was notoriously also a super hard worker as well. So maybe there's something there you know, to the notion that if you kind of just like work really hard at it and chip away, chip away, chip away, study a ton of film, then you can kind of ingrain those habits and, and learn to process the game a little bit better. But barring that, I do think, you know, for Matherin, like the jumper is going to be as it is for so many guys, like the huge swing skill, because like you say, if he's able to, to draw those harder closeouts, that's just going to make his life so much easier in terms of being able to, to blow by guys and get on top of the rim. And that's where the feel really plays into it, too, because it's not even just the closeouts, because during the pre-draft process, when he was at Arizona, I remember me being a dummy. I looked at the numbers and I was like, oh, he's shooting threes off screens at a really good rate, but he's not making uncontested spot up looks like this is probably just noisy and that will likely correct itself. And then that same trend kind of played over last season. And I think some of it was, you know, Arizona was running very specific, like him coming off an exit screen to the corner. And he knew like, this is a play for me to get this corner three. Therefore I know it's coming and I'm going to shoot it versus when he's in a spot up situation and he has to make the read, he might double clutch and, and doesn't quite make the right decision. So I think it goes back to some of that and, and how his three point shot will ultimately progress as well. You mentioned Turner and him being kind of a low feel player, but I, I, do think I mean last season I think unambiguously was his best offensive season and he started to do a lot of things that we hadn't really seen him do mm-hmm. in the past. I think you could say maybe some of that was the product of a, a changing offensive environment. You know, playing with Halliburton is a big part of that, but also the Pacers kind of going four out a lot more, playing wings or even guards sometimes at the four spot. But what did you see from him last season? that I mean I guess gives you optimism or maybe pessimism about his ability to be uh you know a a building block as part of you know the next great Pacers team because he obviously spent many years kind of dangling out there on the trade market and then they signed him to that I think pretty mutually beneficial extension that could lead to him you know staying as a Pacer long term or could lead to him being more trade bait this year or next so what what are you seeing from Turner in terms of his progression and whether that can continue in a positive direction I think the best game to look at for him which I think is his best game of his career not just from like an actual points per game standpoint because it's not as high as scoring game they played the Pelicans in the first half of the season last year and Valanciunas was opposite of him so they were just running tons of pick and pop for miles and miles was shooting that with Valanciunas in the deep drop at a, at a respectable clip to the point where the Pelicans shifted and went to zone. When they went to zone, he was ducking in against the zone close to the basket, making those types of reads. And then eventually, because the Pacers play at such a fast pace, the Pelicans sat balance units for the entire fourth quarter and just went to playing Zion at the five. Then they were switching the pick and rolls between Tyrese and Miles, and Miles was actually diving against those switches, getting a seal. And because they're playing these very small guard lineups, and at the time Ben was shooting the ball very well at the beginning of the season, it's, you know, Tyrese and Ben and Buddy and Neesmith are, are in Nemhard. There's so much space around him in the post that it was very rare that he saw a double team. Very rare that people collapsed there and he went to his hook shot more. Like it was very early in the season where he had already attempted more hook shots than he had the entire prior year, which there wasn't necessarily space for him to be doing a lot in the post when you have Sabonis on the floor. So I think it's a number of factors that went into him having the career year. Him being a five defended by fives like with Valanciunas playing that far off of him, like you can see a definite swing in his three-point percentage when he's defended by centers versus when he's defended by forwards. And that came into play. They went on a seven-game West Coast road trip. At the beginning of the year, they were starting Jalen Smith at power forward. They thought he was going to be able to be there four last year. And all of a sudden, all these teams are cross-matching it. They're putting Sabonis on Jalen Smith. They're putting Nurkic on Jalen Smith. They're putting Jokic on Jalen Smith. And now it's disrupting the offensive flow. Now you have this other big body just parked in the lane, sagging off of Jalen and everybody switching the pick and rolls with Miles. 
So Miles is getting marginalized and turned more into a jump shooter. That's not really going to be his most successful pathway to him being an impact offensive player. So they ended up making the switch to Aaron Neesmith, which then restored that matchup. He's a five defended by fives again. Then also he just started moving to the basket more. Prior to this season, he had never rolled on more than 50% of his screens. And he did it in part because one of either Tyrese or he were going to have to make an adjustment because Tyrese, when he comes off a screen, isn't somebody that really punches the ball to the rim that's going to pair really well with a popping big. He comes mm-hmm. off and surveys and scans. That's going to pair better with a roll man and really creating that indecision on is he going to shoot? Is he going to throw a lob? Is he going to throw a skip pass? So Miles had to roll. And then obviously like the two-point percentage when Miles is playing with Tyrese when he isn't playing with Tyrese is like a nine-point swing. If you play with Tyrese Halliburton, you're probably going to get paid because you're going to look a lot better. Um, like I think that people know that when they get recruited there. And then also just I would credit Miles and say he made himself more dangerous with inactions. So in the past, like they might run like an Iverson cut and then Miles would follow and set an empty side ball screen and then they reverse if they don't get that. It would be Sabonis on a step-up screen on the other side. Miles might get a switch on that empty side ball screen and then he'd just stand there and like point for them to reverse the ball because that's the play. And I'm running the play to what the play says to do instead of making the read within it that like, hey, I have a massive advantage here. I'm going to use a swim move and go in front of the basket. Mm -hmm. Now when you watch him, like they actually run wedge sets for him to slide to the block. And if he doesn't get the ball there, he'll go to the other side and keep fighting for position. You would not have seen him do that a year ago. So I think by the end of the year, I pretty much landed on it that I I feel pretty good about him being the center with Tyrese for the foreseeable future. I haven't seen anything that I would point to and be like, oh, that's going to fall back to earth. Like, I don't think anything was super unsustainable about it other than the fact that most of his stuff in the post is touch-based. So he did take some fadeaways and and some turnarounds where it's kind of dependent on that. So maybe there's a little bit of regression there. But his overall fit, I think it's okay as long as he can be a five defended by fives, which I guess will depend on Obi Toppin, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, that's maybe the, the most interesting thing to me about the Pacers going into next season is like, how do they balance the the offensive and defensive yeah. objectives? Because, yeah, it was huge for Turner offensively to to stick a four next to him who, you know, you couldn't necessarily guard with the center. But what does that do to the Pacers' defense? I mean, he was kind of having to hold that thing together by himself last year. And I think in terms of having some secondary rim protection next to him, I just feel like that's going to be super important. But then can you get that secondary rim protection on the floor without compromising his ability to do everything he did that made him successful at the offensive end last season? I mean, you want him being guarded by fives as often as possible. But, you know, is there an answer on this roster where you get somebody who can play the four next to him who opponents are not going to be able to stick their centers on, uh, but who's also going to give you the kind of supplemental rim protection that you need. I mean, I think getting Bruce Brown just in terms of having the competent on ball perimeter defense will make a difference there, but I still do think that they need the secondary rim protection next to Turner. Yeah. And and another like quiet aspect of this is this is why it's a little bit hard to find the right four to pair with him because they've gone through a lot of different versions like TJ Warren in the bubble was playing at the four next to miles and they were the worst offensive they had the worst opponent offensive rebounding rate of any team in the bubble. When you Mm -hmm. play smaller, Miles already isn't like an impact rebounder, and that's what happened last year as well. The Pacers were the worst defensive rebounding team in the NBA. You're playing Aaron Neesmith at the four spot, and then also another reason why they kind of give up a lot of rebounds there is because you do not play Tyrese at the point of attack. You play him as an aerial ace weak side, and he he tends to get overpowered. So when he's having to box out you know, a wing – on the weak side, there can be some problems there. So when you play really small, you run into some of those issues. And like you said, with the weak side rim protection, like Miles defensively had a very different role last year because more so than any season that I can remember in his tenure, he was assigned to, you know, Denny Avdia, Matisse Thibel, Josh Giddy as a weak side roamer because he had to stay low around the basket because they just yeah. didn't have any on-ball defensive stoppers he had to be around the rim so it was very different than you know him just being a five defending fives and swallowing up pick and rolls so as far as like finding somebody on the roster like ideally that's why you draft Jarris walker because he has such a good off ball instincts you can use him as a low man he can really read and tag and get out and intercept skip passes he is a guy who can get away with gambling because his hands are just so quick but then like you said I, I think it's pretty likely especially based on how he shot in summer league and if that wasn't all attributable to the 
elbow surgery that he ended up requiring afterward that Jairus will probably end up being defended by fives. And the same could be the case with Obi Toppin. So I think if, when you look at the Jairus standpoint, you're just betting on if we can get, you know, if we're not a bottom five defense anymore and we're not the absolute worst rebounding team in the NBA and we can make some strides there, maybe we can survive, you know, a little bit of slippage offensively, especially since you're hoping that you're somebody like, Jairus can do some of the Draymond stuff that if he was a five or if he did start drawing centers, you could put him into the short role. You can do more with him. You can run DHOs with him than what was the case with Jalen Smith last year. Like Jalen just can't do a lot of other things. So, yeah, no, all of that is why, I mean, I, as a Raptors fan, don't really want them to trade Pascal Siakam, but if they were to trade him, I mean, Indiana is very much where I'd want him to end up. I just think he'd make, all kinds of sense there and obviously him being on an expiring deal and maybe not being willing to sign an extension with the Pacers would be a, a hindrance to that but like if they could pull that off and keep him long term I think it'd just be such a hand in glove fit oh I think it would be a terrific fit and in part that's 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 the calculus you make right like if you can add somebody at the four spot who's an all NBA caliber player you no longer care if Miles gets marginalized to a degree because you have an all NBA caliber player out on the court who's also going to help you defensively because in the past, you could say the same thing offensively with Sabonis. Like, Sabonis is just giving you more in that sense than Miles. But defensively, it was compromised to have Sabonis at the four spot. That's mm-hmm. not going to be the same thing with Pascal Siakam. But, I mean, the Pacers did say after the season that, like, they weren't opposed to moving the number seven pick. Two teams that had players on expiring contracts. We can all try to, you know, connect those dots. But they said that, you know, if they didn't if they didn't feel that it was too risky for a small market team to do that, if they didn't feel like that guy was going to resign. So that's ultimately where they landed. Yeah. I mean, OG does have that Indiana connection though. So maybe that would help, but uh, it does seem as though they're going into the season with the roster they currently have. So with that in mind, you know, and let's take like catastrophic injury out of the equation. What leads to this team succeeding and I mean, I, you could say what success even looks like for this team and, and then what would lead them to underachieve or to have an outcome that would register as a failure in your eyes. I mean, I suppose it depends on how you define success. I think if next year they get to the end of the year and they've put themselves in position to sniff at the playoffs or to get into the play-in tournament and potentially give themselves a chance to get into the playoffs from there, while also still maintaining the development of Ben, Andrew, and Jarris. I would deem that as a success. If they're trying desperately to get into the playoffs and that leads to Andrew being marginalized as an off-ball guard in the second unit and eventually Buddy usurps Ben in the starting lineup because maybe that just isn't working and Obi Toppin's marginalizing Jairus Walker and then you don't make the playoffs anyways, that's going to be that's gonna be a step in the wrong direction for me. So those, those are the main goals. I mean, I think organizationally they're – what they did this summer, I would define as they're trying to make a surge to the playoffs while also maintaining all of their flexibility. Because even with Bruce Brown, I think he's definitely going to help them in the immediate. He's very malleable, but they gave him a team option on the second year. So like they could theoretically move his contract for another you know, good player and package him with other stuff and assets if they want to. So I think that they this front office very much likes to maintain their optionality for as long as they possibly can. So, um, Okay, this is my last Pacers adjacent question for you before we move on to some more macro stuff. But uh, obviously the Pacers and Kings are kind of going to be intertwined in a way for a while, just because of that very interesting and consequential Halliburton for Sabonis trade. And Sabonis was, you know, he'd been an all-star twice, but even so it felt like last season was kind of a coming out party for him makes all NBA for the first time um, and helps, you know, end the longest playoff drought in North American pro sports. From your perspective, I mean, you, you've spent a number of years covering him in Indiana. I imagine you watched, you know, a decent amount of him in Sacramento. Was there anything you felt like fundamentally changed about his game or the way he played last season or was his success more about the roster context in Sacramento? You know, almost similar to the way Indiana's roster context helped Turner unlock the best offensive version of himself. Yeah, I mean, I think for Sabonis with the Pacers, I mean, people know this. I 
between Miles and Sabonis that last season when everything looked stale and they knew they needed to veer to a rebuild, people would always ask me, like, you know, what should they trade Sabonis for? They'll likely get more for him in return. And I was pretty adamant that I wouldn't trade him on an $18 million deal with two years left unless it was an absolute no-brainer. Like, it would just have to be overwhelming for me to do that. Then obviously when Tyrese comes out, I was like, okay, so this was the no-brainer. Like, when you can get him on the second year of a rookie deal, you do it. But... Also, the other half of that was is knowing how difficult it was going to be for the Pacers to construct what they needed to around him for him to be successful. Because even, you know, that season, this is the game I would point to. They were playing in Phoenix and Chris Paul literally looked at their bench midway through a game and said, back up. They can't effing shoot. Like they only hit Justin Holiday was the only movement shooter on that roster. And Justin Holiday was the only player on that roster shooting above 35% from three. So a lot of times it was like watching a fountain with a burned out pump. Like Sabonis would be drawing all these help coverages. You know, it's kind of like watching the Raptors. Like Pascal Siakam draws all this help. And when you're throwing the ball out there, it's just, it's empty. Like you're not getting yeah. anything out of it because there's not the shooting around him. So, you know, then he goes to Sacramento and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, well now he's playing at the five and you can have Keegan Murray at the four and Keegan can come off of a DHO and be able to shoot. Like that was never an option that the Pacers could even go to with somebody at the four spot when he was in Indiana. So just being able to lean that heavily into a DHO offense and obviously, you know, in the playoffs, they ran into some trouble with Kavon and Draymond sagging that far off of him and what he is as a mid-range shooter. But I would counter that playing that type of spy defense where you're completely relying on the other four people to be funneling the ball into those spots is incredibly tiring and not a lot of teams can execute that to the degree that Golden State did. And also, you know, it would have helped if Kevin Herter and some of those other guys were making shots because it would have made it a lot harder for those guys to stay that far back in the paint. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, I literally had a follow-up question here that was asking about his playoff series and whether that was more about him or more about Kevin Herter shooting 20% from three. But so, uh, yeah, I guess like, d- did you feel like he actually made meaningful strides though last season or was that just mainly about the roster context changing? I think it was the roster context changing and in part, like I hate doing the whole thing of people don't watch the Pacers. I just don't think that they were fully seeing what he was capable of because of Mm -hmm. what else was there. And because he's playing in a lineup with miles where neither one of them were really getting to show all that's kind of like splitting up De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese, honestly, too. Like both of them really came into their own because they're no longer on the same team together. So I think it was mainly that. I tend to agree. uh, And I think, there's probably a valuable lesson in there about how we evaluate players and about the importance of taking roster context into consideration when we do so. But that is all I've got for you on Pacers and Pacers adjacent topics. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, I've got some questions for you about the state of the NBA at large. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. A big reason I wanted to have you on the show, obviously, I mean, I'm always going to ask you about Pacers stuff if I have a chance to talk to you, but I know that you have an incredibly keen eye for basketball detail. You know, you're an incredible student of the game. And I'm just always interested in macro stylistic trends and kind of diagnosing where the league is headed and I just think that's become especially interesting over the last five years or so because I think you can disagree with me I guess but I feel like it's really accelerated in terms of like tactical innovation and I mean you see that at both ends of the floor but part of where it really grabs me is like you look at offensive efficiency and we know that offensive efficiency around the league has been you know on this upward trajectory for a very long time and last season was the most efficient offensive season on record and what's interesting to me about that now is like I I think for a long time we were seeing offense spike in large part due to what we might call shot spectrum optimization 
where teams were just recognizing that if they were like rerouting the shots that they were taking to more efficient spots on the floor, then they could get more out of their offense. And we saw, you know, like a huge spike in threes as a result of that. Mostly that was just like relocating mid-range shots to the three-point line. Mm -hmm. And then about four years ago, that completely stabilized. And actually three-point attempt rate declined last year for the first time in 12 years. So I don't know how much more teams can do in terms of streamlining their shot profile to the point that they get like the most efficient version of it. I, I kind of feel like we're most of the way there, but we're still seeing offense improve at this exponential rate. So I'm wondering what you think or why you think that's continuing to happen and how much further it can go. I think I like what you brought up there kind of loosely about the idea of like basketball diversity and the roles and things that people are doing on a court that we wouldn't have seen those people in those same positions doing. I wrote like, I'm not taking this back to the Pacers. I'm just using it as an example that I wrote a piece in August looking at the last time Rick Carlisle coached the Pacers in 2007 versus now they run the exact same sideline out of bounds play that they were running clear back then. It just looks way different now, not only because the screens are being set higher and people aren't, you know, coming off of a stagger and just running to where they can get open to it being a mid range too, but also because of what people are willing to do within that action. Like it, it wouldn't have been, you know, Andrew Nemhard setting a pin down for a big in 2007, but now he's doing that. And Oh, by the way, Kristaps Porzingis is guarding Andrew Nemhard and now has to chase through a pin down. Like, those types of things are like watching Miles Turner catch the ball on a DHO, fake it because the defense is going to switch and then use a, tr- a stride stop finish and step out of it to shoot a hook shot. Like that type of stuff we weren't just necessarily seeing. So like um, like a stat that I looked up from Second Spectrum before we hopped on here is like a league-wide trend is even just this year by comparison to last year. The top eight teams in total volume of gar- screens set by guards, and this isn't just screens that were used, but all screens that were used on possession set by guards – a year ago, only three of the eight was that at least 30% of their screens, being that guards were setting at least 30% of their total volume of screens. Last year, six of the top eight was over 30% of their screens were being set by guards. So like Oklahoma City last year was almost at 60% of their screens were set by guards. And that's in part because they didn't have Chet Holmgren. You know, they don't have a five man who's setting the picks. But like, you know, you can look down the list, Boston, Chicago, Dallas, Orlando, Denver, the Pacers were right hovering at 30%, like just way more people doing things that we weren't seeing even five years ago. Yeah, I I wrote about that a little bit during last season, and I don't actually have access to the second spectrum data, but I just happen to have a friend who does, and he looked this up for me. And the number that I had at the time, again, this was midway through the season, but Uh, Across the league, guards were setting 16 ball screens per 100 possessions. And taking it back to 2013-14, that number was less than one. So that's definitely a huge huge part of it. And more teams, I guess, kind of like the Pacers and like the Thunder did last season are just putting four guards on the floor at one time. I mean, just like putting more skill on the floor in general, I guess. And also, I guess you could point to like the the skill quotient across every position just rising sort of year over year. Um, Another thing that has sort of popped to me over the last, I don't know, two or three years, I feel like more teams are just using corner screens in general, like pin-ins and exit screens and things like that, where even if you have a guy on the floor who's like a non-spacer who's mostly playing in the dunker spot, like using that guy as a corner screener is, you know, super effective, whether that's, you know, designed to free a shooter in the corner or just to like engage a help defender so that you can run your central action and, and like clear the help out of the way. What have you seen in terms of like the way that the teams are utilizing corner screeners? Yeah. I mean, that happened uh, quite a bit in the Knicks heat series where in order to have Mitchell Robinson on the floor, because he's not going to do much in space, you're not going to post him. Obi Toppin was being guarded by the opposing team's worst player. Like most of the time he was being guarded by Duncan Robinson or Max Struess. So he would go set a screen for Jalen Brunson to get that switch. And as soon as he set it, like he wasn't doing it to, you know, screen below, stay below and get a shot on the roll. He was doing it to clear out. And then he was just automatically running past Mitchell Robinson in the dunker spot to get to the corner. And to his credit, he had become somewhat of a quicker trigger shooter by the end of last season. Cause that's what the Knicks needed him to do. 
So that was effective for them in some possessions in that in that series, despite the fact that they were kind of quote unquote playing with two bigs, depending upon how you view Obi Toppin. I do think that what you said a lot of times it isn't even necessarily to get that shot; it's to remove the low man and distort where the tag is coming from. But then it kind of comes to the place where I have seen certain teams, like the Pacers, tried to do that a lot a year ago when they were still playing Sabonis and Turner together against the Warriors to try to adjust where Draymond was like they were running horns twist. And after miles would set the first screen out of horns, he would go off an exit stream in the ball side corner. And Draymond was just kind of like, okay, like have a nice time going out there. So I do wonder what the adjustment will be from teams. The longer that that happens where it's like, okay, we don't need to follow everybody through that screen. Yeah. So, it, so to, to take it back to kind of my initial question, like, do you, do you see this as like continuing on an upward trajectory in terms of offensive efficiency or is it approaching a plateau here? Like how much better can offense realistically get from where it's at now? I mean, I think the better question is, is can defenses actually catch up? Like when Mm -hmm. you hear coaches talking about it, like one thing that Rick Carlisle says a lot, and I heard Steve Clifford say similarly is like, you're just going to have to find people who can be better defending on the ball. And that's something that they had to ream home, obviously, with the Pacers because of how many targetable options there were on their roster. But, you know, how in the modern area are you stopping guards from blow-bys? How are you stopping them from pull-up threes? And, like, I know some people want to turn this into debates about rule changes, but to me it's more about how is the defense going to innovate to catch up to even what the current level is, even if it has plateaued. All right, so let's get into that. How how are they going to do it? I mean, I think like if we're just talking, like we're talking about the volume of the ghost screening, I think a trend that I've started noticing in Jonathan Chen, who has been covering Team Canada, this is even something that the Canadian national team has been doing during this World Cup run, is typically the decision on a ghost screen is, are we going to switch it or are we going to not switch it? Mm -hmm. And your options, if you're going to switch it, which the NBA has been using for a while, is that you know, the player defending the screener, like if you're imagining Tyrese Halliburton is on ball and Buddy Heald's going to go set the the screen, the screener's defender will call out like ghost or screen coming and the on-ball defender will open up their stance at that point in time so they can see where the screener is coming and they can funnel that ball handler into the player that's going to receive the switch. Now what you're starting to see more teams do and the Pacers do this, but other NBA teams are doing it across as well is imagine that the person who's guarding Buddy Heald stays right on Buddy Heald's hip. And when they get close, they use a gentle nudge or they will push Buddy into actually setting that screen. And it really disrupts the momentum of the screener. And you have to be, you have to be good at this because if you don't stay in lockstep with Buddy, like you actually have to be riding his hip. Because if you stand up off ball and Buddy goes into a full sprint and you have to catch up and then you're extending your arms, that's going to be a blatant foul. So there's some players who are better than this at others, but in terms of like, okay, now if Buddy Heald gets loose, we don't have to bring a defender from the weak side corner to go cover him and we're not putting our defense into rotation. We're able to defend this action two by two and we're eliminating the confusion that normally comes from ghost screening. That's like a little tiny trend that I've been noticing and even seeing, like I said, Canada's doing it. A couple other world cup teams have started doing it. Like it gives you a middle way between, are we going to out and out switch this or are we going to not switch it? And you're being able to defend it two by two. And I think that that's like kind of the most important thing for defenses is how are we finding ways to be able to defend all these screening actions without having to involve a third defender. Yeah, I, I mean, I had Samson Folk on this pod last year and we were talking about a lot of the same stuff and like ghosting came up and he said basically he felt like ghosting was like a, a hack for offense basically and that there was just like no good way to guard it. I mean, if you had somebody who's a really good movement shooter and like an explosive guard who when that on-ball defender does open up his stance can kind of just blow by and get right into the middle um there just aren't a lot of good options but that little um what do you call it a a push switch yeah is uh you know potentially a good counter to that i guess if it if you can get away with it without it going called by the officials then um this is where andrew numbard's a ghost buster he's really (laughs) good at it like not everybody on the team can do it because like i said like there's times where you'll watch like the pacers obviously teach this across the board because they all try to do it for the most part, but not everybody is as good at doing it. It's like when Jordan Wara came over from the Bucks in pretty short order, you could tell 
that he had been told like, Hey, we push switch on ghost screens. And he just gave up so much separation that when he got out there, it was just a blatant shove. But like I right. said, if you, if you stay attached to the guy on the approach, then the gentle nudge isn't really noticeable and you're getting them to create contact and it's very clear. Okay. Now we switch this. What do you see as like a counter to that from an offensive player? If they're sort of expecting a push switch, how can they leverage that against the defense? Do you think? I don't know. I I have not seen very many teams. I don't know how you could be more deceptive with how you're approaching to still be able to ghost it because I, I literally haven't seen teams be able to do that. Like this is one of the few things that the Pacers actually do well on defense mm-hmm. is that they remove, they, they make the action more static. Like generally then you're just hoping that the switch, one of the two people that you've got on the switch when it happens, that you're going to be able to attack them in space and still get into the paint. Right. I do want to talk about this defensive idea that you put out into the world. It was a tweet, I think back in January that caught my attention and that really spoke to me. And then you wrote a follow-up article about it. And what you said was more defense should think of the pick and roll in terms of which direction the ball is moving and whether there are one or multiple players on that side, rather than thinking of it in terms of weak versus strong side. And I, I just like couldn't agree with that more. And it, it like frustrates me to no end when we see these like hard and fast rules yeah. about whether the help should come from, you know, quote unquote weak or strong side rather than, you know, not just accounting for like the number of players on either side, but like the quality of shooters on either side. And I generally just think, I mean, when I hear stuff in this day and age where there is so much innovation and so much malleability on both sides of the ball, I, when I still hear people saying like, you know, you, you never help off the strong side corner. I just sort of bristle at that a little bit because I I don't think that these rules should be hard and fast. Like they're, I just think there's too much going on in terms of like the tactical chess match to be so beholden to those principles. So I would love to have you expand on that idea a little bit more. And I I know you wrote that piece about it uh, with, the play, the offensive play that the Pacers were running that had had so much success that basically capitalized on uh, on the way that defenses tend to have have those hard and fast rules in place, even if it means bringing a tagger from the single side. Right. So like just to give people a visual example, um, after Tyrese got hurt last year, they were trying to use some different pick and roll ball handlers and spots. So they let Jordan Wara have some opportunities to run middle pick and roll and the way that they would get into that is TJ McConnell would toss him the ball and then there would be two people at both elbows. TJ in a chin cut would cut off of the strong side elbow and relocate into the strong side corner. And then Jalen Smith or whoever was the center on the floor would approach um, Jordan Moore and go set a screen. So it's middle pick and roll. You have two people on the strong side, one on the weak side who would typically then shake up from the corner or lift from the corner to the wing as he was dribbling off that pick. So you have a single tagger on the backside of the action is what people need to envision. Now that was almost always TJ McConnell locating to the strong side corner. And on the backside, it would be either Andrew Nemhart or Buddy Heald. So I was just watching this work over and over again because most typically the defender on the backside would commit to Jalen Smith on the roll and then the Pacers would get a wide open three out of this. And my question to NBA defenses is, and in part stemming back to that tweet, is wouldn't you rather give up a potentially open shot to TJ McConnell in the strong side corner where he shot, I believe, 33% on uncontested threes last year and he only took like 30 the whole entire season? Or would you rather give up a shot to Buddy Heald on the backside who shot above 36% on contested threes? So like generally speaking, the reason why teams tag from the weak side is because the thought process for all of these years has been the ball has further to travel we have longer to recover on that pass to get back out to the shooter. But as shooters continue to improve, and like I just said, when you have Buddy who can shoot that well on a contested three anyways, that's still damaging to you. Whereas what you said, like, wouldn't you want to help from the weaker shooter or my argument, I would rather help from where I have a numbers advantage. So like one team that actually did execute this that I I noticed early on is that uh, Frank Vogel would do this with the Lakers when he was still coaching there that like you would watch them in certain games, like the Lakers played the Mavericks. I want to say at the end of the 2021 season, I was watching that game. And if they were running like a Chicago action where Kleba is setting the pin down and Luca's in the corner and it was like Willie Cauley Stein doing the handoff, 
Kleba in that situation would be the only person behind the action for you to tag off of. So the Lakers would send the tag from the the strong side of the floor, the direction of the ball going where they had two defenders, even if that was Brunson and, and Tim Hardaway Jr. They would just then zone that up, send a tagger to Willie, Willie Cauley-Stein so that they weren't having to just have a single tag between Kleba and Willie Cauley-Stein. And they did that consistently that entire game. I do not see many teams doing this. That's one of few teams that I've noticed that's actually committed to that for an entire game. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned like shooters getting better and that making the kind of the ball having farther to travel, not as impactful when you're tagging from the weak side. But it's also just that like anybody in the league can make that skip pass now. Like I think everyone's just gotten so good at making that pass that it's like, yeah, this idea that you're just going to give them this really difficult pass to make and enough time to make that closeout doesn't really hold anymore. The example that jumped out to me, I don't know why it was this this one that just like stuck in my craw so much, but it was game four between the Nuggets and Suns. And like, you know, for the most part, I think the Nuggets were super dialed in defensively for the entire postseason. But there was that one game four where Landry Shamit just torched them. I think he hit like six threes in that game. And I mean, obviously, you know, Booker was outrageous, but it was kind of Shamit's performance in that game. I think that swung it Phoenix's way. And it was like this patch in the fourth quarter where Booker was actually on the bench. So Katie was like running pick and roll and Shamit is really the only other shooter on the floor that you could be concerned about. And on, he's like the, the, the single side guy on the weak side and Jamal Murray is guarding him. And on the strong side is TJ Warren in the corner being guarded by MPJ and campaign on the wing being guarded by, I think Bruce Brown and so when KD runs that pick and roll, Jokic comes up to the level as the the Nuggets like to have him do, especially when it's somebody like Durant running that pick and roll. And Murray comes with the tag off of Shamit, where it could have easily been, you know, whether you wanted to next it like with with Bruce Brown mm-hmm. on the wing, or have MPJ be the tagger from that side. Like the worst case scenario is you're having one of those other two defenders zone up between yep. Campaign and TJ Warren, as opposed to giving up what wound up being a pretty easy skip pass and an open three for Shamit, the most dangerous shooter on the floor. And those are situations where I just, I, I came right back to to that idea that, that you had espoused where I'm like, I just don't, I, I just think there needs to be a little bit more flexibility of defensive principle in order to keep up with the way that offenses are, are operating in this day and age. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's rethinking that, you know, it's, it's no longer the strong and the weak side of the floor. It's the two side and the single side. And how does that impact what we're doing? Cause even what you just said there with the next, like that's just a whole nother heady evolution of what you could do here to avoid the single side tagging is that if the ball's moving toward the side of the floor where there's two players filling the wing in the corner and you only have one person on the backside, then next it from the wing. And then you don't even need to use that tag. If the ball is moving to the single side and you have two players defending, then you can pick from a menu of coverages. Maybe you're very aggressive with blitz. Maybe you go to at the level or up to a touch because you know you have two players back behind there. And then that would just randomize the coverage more. Like, especially if you're having like the low man being able to give a cue to the big about what they can be in because the low man obviously knows. I know if there's two two players currently on the side of the floor because likely if you were doing that, an offense would adjust by maybe having somebody run baseline so that they could confuse your coverage. But if you're the low man and you're communicating it, then it could be even more random. And I think that that's something, being able to find randomness as a defense, I think is something that's going to become so much more valuable because offenses have already met that mark. They're already not running as much out of set action. So that's something that I keep an eye on too. Yeah, and I mean, to your point about the Pacers using TJ McConnell in the strong side, like teams will take advantage of those defensive principles by like sticking one of their weaker shooters in that corner and feel confident that the help's not going to come off of that side anyway. Uh, I think the Hawks did that a lot with DeJounte Murray last year, where to try to mitigate the spacing issues they had when DeJounte was playing off ball next to Trey, like they would consistently have him in the strong side corner and, you know, teams were reluctant to help off of him from that side. And that, I mean, the spacing in Atlanta wasn't great last year anyway, but that was sort of one way that they tried to mitigate it. And I think as a defense, you could flip that on its head a little bit by just saying that you don't care about strong versus weak side. And I feel like the Knicks actually did that a bit against Cleveland in the first round of the playoffs where like it didn't really matter if a Coro was standing 
on the ball side. Like they were helping off him super aggressively anyway, right. and it completely demolished Cleveland's offense. Yeah. Um, okay. So that aside, are there any other, let's call them tactical inefficiencies that you see in the game right now where there's just sort of untilled soil that, uh, you know, a team could kind of tap into to give themselves a leg up. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of look to it like mixed pick and roll coverages, more advanced pick and roll coverages, and also just like this idea. I put out a tweet about this earlier today where like I was talking to somebody who works as a scouting consultant in basketball about the idea of are rim protectors still able to buoy a defense in and of themselves? Because like mm-hmm. watching the Pacers last year, Miles Turner is a very good rim protector, but he wasn't going to lift that system by himself. And who are the types of defenders who can do that? And like we look at like look at a guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander who moves so uniquely offensively that it throws off the rhythm of defenses. Are there the types of defenders that we can identify who similarly move uniquely on defense in a way that can disrupt the rhythm of offenses or that do something unique that can disrupt the rhythm of offenses? So like to give player examples like what we saw last year from Jaron Jackson Jr. being a rampaging, you know, weak side roamer or what Alex Caruso does a lot of times for the Bulls where he can be very aggressive as a help defender because his feel is so good and he can take on unique assignments. Or, you know, Brooke Lopez, when he was first, you know, put into deep drop for the Bucks, part of the reason why he's so successful with that is because he's very good at using jabs and baiting techniques that throw off the rhythm of the ball handler. So, like, finding unique defenders who can elevate a system more than, like, an archetype where I still think rim protection is important. Like you're in, you're in Toronto, you know, that adding Jakob Pertle made the Raptors defense better last year, but I don't think that that can be your strongest link and expect that it's going to carry a scheme anymore. So then it becomes, like I said, like being able to find in a Pacers context, probably the person who stands out the most with this is Andrew Nembhard because he can just make reads on the defensive end of the floor that are not the coverage that the Pacers are doing. Like they played the final game of the year against the Knicks. There was a pick and roll between Emmanuel quickly and Isaiah Hartenstein. The Pacers switched that screen between Nemhard and O'Shea Brissett. So O'Shea's out on an Island with quickly Nemhard fronts Hartenstein in the paint and on the penetration from quickly Nemhard peels onto the ball and communicates to O'Shea to go cover Hartenstein. So it's effectively switched to peel as a more advanced pick and roll coverage. That is not something the Pacers had done for the rest of that game. It wasn't like they had com- the, co- the coaching staff had said, okay, if there's a pick and roll between quickly and Hartenstein, this is what we're doing. It was just Nemhard being like, this is what's better for the defense. I'm going to communicate it and it's going to work. So mm. like being able to identify those types of defenders and then also maybe looking at that from a coaching evaluation standpoint and being like, you know, you stumbled onto something there but that actually might be valuable against certain types of pick and roll combinations. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Draymond Green too is the ultimate example of just that defender who will, you know, defend kind of out of scheme and, and just do like, I mean, he's reading and reacting. I feel like almost every time. And like you mentioned him being the guy who's like, yeah, I'm not really going to pay attention to that corner screen, like have fun talking about like Brooke Lopez being able to sort of like jab and bait when he's playing drop defense. I feel like Draymond also does that as well as almost anybody. And maybe that as much as anything is what has made him so successful in this era of offensive proliferation is just being that guy who can adapt to whatever the offense is doing and do what's necessary, not necessarily what a particular scheme dictates. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's the key differentiation is finding defenders who can play in a play audible scheme and be very effective in it without compromising your defense versus players who have to play in a very static specific scheme as people Mm -hmm. who can operate out of it. I just think that that's going to be more important even in draft evaluation as you move forward. And I think in team construction, like you talk about rim protection and how maybe that can't just be the sole thing that buoys your defense anymore. But I think maybe it's more just about thinking about rim protection as something that happens all over the court rather than just at the rim itself. Yeah. Because it's easier to move one person, right? Like even with the Pacers, when they were going really small and playing with four guards, like I've brought up this example a lot, but they played the Oklahoma city thunder in OKC and the Pacers assigned miles Turner to Josh Giddy because they needed somebody to, they needed him to roam. And the very first play that Oklahoma, that Oklahoma countered with is they put Josh Giddy in the post 
so mm. that Miles would have to defend outside the paint, and then they just ran split cut action, and it's like, okay, well now Buddy Heald's the low man. If you like flipping this on the head, Oklahoma City didn't have a rim protector last year. They didn't have Chet Holmgren. Now Chet Holmgren will make their defense better, but it's a lot harder to move four people who are protecting your rim with random coverages. And because they are a team, like what you said earlier, when you bristle at saying like, oh, don't help off the strong side corner. Oklahoma City is very aggressive in helping off the strong side corner, and that's part of their rim protection. Yeah, something that the the Raptors did a ton as well before Pirtle got there and then were able to scale back a little bit when he arrived. But uh, I think that's all I have for you today, Caitlin. Thank you so much for uh, lending your time and your insight. I will uh, give you the floor to plug all of your wonderful content uh, before we sign off here. First of all, thanks for having me on and having me have this depth of a conversation with somebody. I really appreciate that. Um, As for me, you can find me at at C2 underscore Cooper on Twitter. If you go to my Twitter handle, there's a link in my bio to the Patreon, patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote, that's where all my work is hosted now. Um, I also do a mailbag there for patrons only where people can ask me questions. I've been doing those as videos, but there's some of the work that's unlocked. I try to do a couple free pieces a month too, so that people can kind of do kind of a, a test run and see if they like the type of coverage that I'm doing. But I would love to have anybody that wants to come over there. I don't think I only write about the Pacers. I write about basketball through the lens of the Pacers is how I would describe it. Yeah, that's a perfect way to put it. And uh, for all our, our listeners, if you're not already subscribed or reading Caitlin's stuff, I can't recommend it highly enough. And uh, like Caitlin said, it doesn't really matter if you're a Pacers fan or not. Uh, you will learn a ton about the NBA and the game of basketball by reading her. So thank you again, Caitlin, for taking the time. And for everybody listening, I'll be back with Joe Cash next week, and we'll start to ramp up for the fast-approaching NBA season. But for now, we're going to put a bow on this. So for Caitlin Cooper and an absent Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. We'll talk to you all soon. (laughs) 